Section 19 of The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. The Day of Sir Wilfrid Laurier, A Chronicle of Our Own Time, by Oscar D. Skelton. The Coming of Prosperity, Part 2 none too soon an important step was taken in nineteen o nine to ensure the perpetuation and the prudent use of the country's natural resources in the early lavish days men had believed these resources inexhaustible or had recklessly ignored the claims of the future in their haste to snatch a fortune to-day the united states had gone furthest on this path and was the first to come to its senses a conference held at Washington in 1909, attended by representatives of the United States, Canada, Newfoundland, and Mexico, notable also as one of the first instances of Canada's recognition of the fact that she was an American power, recommended the establishment of a conservation commission in each country. Canada was the only country that acted upon the advice. The Conservation Commission was established that very year, with wide duties of investigation and recommendation. Under Sir Clifford Sifton as chairman and Mr. James White as secretary, it has performed valuable and varied service. The sea was given thought as well as the land. The fishing bounties already established were continued. Experts were brought from Europe to improve the methods of curing fish cooperative cold-storage warehouses for bait were set up, and a fast refrigerator car service on both coasts brought fresh fish to the interior. Laboratories for the study of marine life and fish hatcheries came into being. Unfortunately, disputes arose as to jurisdiction between Dominion and provinces, and between Canada and the United States, and the fisheries did not grow at the rate of other industries. The manufacturer, however, continued to be the chief object of attention. An increase took place in the service of trade commissioners for Canada in other countries, whose duties are similar to those of a foreign consular service. The bounties on iron and steel production, amounting in all to twenty millions, undoubtedly did much to stimulate that industry. The protective tariff, as we have seen, remained in a modified form. After the notable step of 1897 towards a purely revenue tariff, there came a halt for some years. In fact, it seemed for a time that the pendulum would swing towards still higher duties. In 1902 the manufacturers began a strong campaign in that direction, which was given aggressive support by the Minister of Public Works, J. Israel Tart often termed by opponents of the government the master of the administration. This breach of ministerial solidarity Sir Wilfrid Laurier met on his return from the Colonial Conference by an instant demand for Mr. Tart's resignation. It was made clear that the compromise which had been adopted in 1897 would not be rashly abandoned. Yet the movement for a tariff, high as Haman's gallows, continued, and produced some effect. 
It led, in 1904, to a reduction of the British preference on woolens and to an anti-dumping act aimed against slaughter or bargain sales by foreign producers, providing for a special duty when articles were sold in Canada for less than the prevailing price in the country of origin. In the same year, Mr. Fielding foreshadowed the introduction of a minimum and maximum tariff, with the existing duties as the minimum, and with maximum duties to be applied to countries which levied especially high rates on Canadian products. Only the vigorous opposition set up by the farmers of Ontario and the West checked the agitation for still higher duties. The new tariff of 1907 made many careful revisions upward as well as downward, but on the whole the existing level was retained. Below the maximum or general rate, but higher than the British preference, there was set up an intermediate tariff for bargaining with foreign states. This compromise tariff of 1907 remained in force with little change or strong agitation for change, until three years later, when negotiations for reciprocity with the United States once more brought the issue to the front. The field of social legislation, in which so many radical experiments have been made by other lands, in Canada falls for the most part to the provinces. Within its limited jurisdiction, the Laurier government achieved some notable results. Early in its career, it put down sweating and made compulsory the payment of fair wages by government contractors. It set up a department of labor, making it possible to secure much useful information, hitherto inaccessible, and to guard workmen's interests in many relations. Late in the Laurier regime, a commission was appointed to study the question of technical education, important alike for manufacturer and for artisan. The most distinctive innovation, however, was the Lemieux Act, drawn up by W. L. Mackenzie King, the first Deputy Minister of Labor. This provided for compulsory investigation into labor disputes in quasi-public industries. It proved a long step towards industrial peace, and was one of the few Canadian legislative experiments which have awakened worldwide interest and investigation. The growth of the West made it necessary to face the question of granting full provincial powers to the Northwest Territories. Originally, under the direct rule of the Dominion Parliament, step by step they had approached self-government. In 1886 they had been given representation at Ottawa. In 1888 a local legislature was created, with limited powers, later somewhat enlarged, and in 1897 the Executive Council was made responsible to the legislature. Now with half a million people between Manitoba and British Columbia, the time had come to take the last step. And so in 1905 the autonomy bills, establishing the provinces of Alberta and Saskatchewan, were brought before the House of Commons by the Prime Minister. There were many controversial issues involved. How many provinces should be created? Two were decided upon to comprise the area south of the 60th parallel. The area to the north was left in the territorial status. What should be the capitals? Provisionally, Edmonton and Regina were selected. Should the provinces be given control of crown lands? 
notwithstanding some opposition it was decided to maintain the policy in force from the first acquisition of the west of keeping the lands in control of the dominion which also had control of immigration what financial aid should be given liberal grants were provided accepted by all parties as fair and adequate what legislative powers should the provinces be given particularly on the subject of education this proved a thorny question it provoked a storm of heated controversy which for a brief time recalled the days of the jesuits estates and manitoba school questions a clause in the bills which sir wilfrid laurier introduced in february nineteen o five provided first that section ninety three of the british north america act safeguarding minority privileges should apply secondly to make it clearer what these privileges were it stipulated that the majority of the ratepayers in any district might establish such schools as they thought fit and that the minority whether protestant or catholic might also do so being in that case liable only for one set of school rates and thirdly that legislative appropriations should be divided equitably between public and separate schools three main questions arose were separate schools desirable in themselves was there any obligation legal or moral to establish or maintain them if so what form should they take introducing the bills sir wilfrid stated that he never could understand what objection there could be to a system of schools wherein after secular matters had been attended to the tenets of the religion of christ even with the divisions which exist among his followers are allowed to be taught he went on to contrast the schools of canada wherein christian dogmas and morals were taught with those of the united states where they were not taught and to point out the resulting difference in moral standards as witnessed by lynching murder and divorce statistics the great majority of catholics and a minority of protestants or their ecclesiastical spokesmen regarded the school as a means of teaching religion as well as secular subjects and wished secular subjects where possible to be taught from a distinctly religious point of view a small minority were in favor of complete secularization of all schools the majority of protestants would probably have favored some non-denominational recognition of religion in the schools and would judge denominational teaching by the test of how far this would involve herding the children apart and putting obstacles in the path of educational efficiency and of national unity but was parliament free to grant the provinces the liberty to decide the question solely in accord with what the majority might now or hereafter think expedient on the one hand it was vigorously contended that it was free and that any attempt to limit the power of the province was uncalled for was an attempt to petrify its laws and to revive the coercion which sir wilfrid laurier himself had denounced and defeated in eighteen ninety six the recognition of separate schools in the british north america act the critics continued applied only to the four original provinces and there was probably no power and certainly no legal obligation to extend the principle to the west on the other hand it was argued that section ninety three of the british north america act introduced at the insistence of the protestant minority of quebec 
and designed to protect the interest of all minorities, morally and legally bound the whole Dominion, that the Manitoba Act of 1870 confirmed the principle that the Dominion could give a new province only such powers as the Constitution provided, which meant control over education subject to the minority's privilege, and that Parliament, by unanimously establishing separate schools in the Northwest Territories in 1875, had still further bound its successors, or at least had shown how the Fathers of Confederation interpreted the Constitution. To many, however, the abstract questions of separate schools and the Constitution were less important than the practical question, what kind of schools were to be guaranteed by these bills. Sir Wilfrid Laurier declared that the school system to be continued was that actually in force in the Northwest, which had been established under the clause respecting schools of the Dominion Act of 1875, which the present bills repeated word for word. This system worked very satisfactorily. It gave Catholic and Protestant minorities the right to establish separate schools and to pay taxes only for such schools. In all other respects, the school system was uniform. There was only one department of education, one course of study, one set of books, one staff of inspectors. No religious teaching or religious emblems were permitted during school hours. Only in the half hour after the close of school might such teaching be provided. The separate schools were really national schools with the minimum of ecclesiastical control. It soon became apparent, however, that the schools then existing in the Northwest, though based on the Act of 1875, were much less ecclesiastical in character than the Act permitted, and less ecclesiastical in fact than the schools which had formerly existed in the territories. In 1884 the Quebec system had been set up, providing for two boards of education, two courses of study, two staffs of inspectors, and separate administrations. But in 1892 this dual system had been abolished by the territorial legislature, and in 1901 the existing system had been definitely established by a series of ordinances. To meet the objections urged, the new bills were amended to make it clear that it was the limited separate school system established in 1901 that was to be continued, and not a complete separate system as authorized in 1875. The bills, as originally drafted, virtually gave the Church complete control over separate schools, but, as now amended, control over religious education only. The measure was hotly debated inside and outside Parliament. Particularly in Ontario, the original bills were denounced by many Liberals, as well as Conservatives, as oppressive, reactionary, and a concession to the hierarchy. The West itself was not disturbed, and the Protestants of Quebec acquiesced in the recognition of separate schools. Mr. Sifton made the measure the occasion for resigning from the ministry. The controversy was a great surprise to Sir Wilfrid, who had considered that he was simply carrying out the agreement reached unanimously in 1875. The amendment satisfied all the malcontents of his party in Parliament, but the controversy continued outside. The more extreme opponents of separate schools would see no difference between the new clause and the old. Archbishop Langevin strongly denounced the amendment, 
but the fire soon cooled. Today, fewer than one school in a hundred in the two provinces is a separate school. Throughout this period of rapid growth, the Liberal Party maintained its place in power. The country was prosperous and content, and the party chieftain invincible. The general elections of 1904 turned chiefly on railway issues. The criticisms of the opposition, many of them well-grounded, proved unavailing. The contest ended in a victory for the government, with a majority of sixty seats in the House, and of fifty thousand votes in the country. The results presented the usual discrepancies between electoral votes and parliamentary representation. Though the Liberals had only fifty-four thousand votes in Nova Scotia, as against forty-six thousand for the Conservatives, they captured all the eighteen seats. Prince Edward Island, giving the Liberals a popular majority, returned three Conservatives to one Liberal. Ontario cast 217,000 Conservative and 213,000 Liberal votes, and returned 48 Conservatives and 38 Liberals. An untoward incident of the elections was the defeat of Mr. R. L. Borden in Halifax, the leader of the opposition had won universal respect, and it was to the satisfaction of opponents as well as followers that another seat was shortly found for him. In the general elections of four years later, 1908, no single issue was dominant. The opposition alleged graft and corruption, and charged ministers and ex-ministers with breach of the Eighth and neighboring commandments, Government officials, too, they said, were guilty of extravagance and fraud. Timber limits, contracts, land deals figured in still further scandals. The ministerial forces replied in the usual way, claiming in some cases that there was no ground for the allegations, and in others that they themselves had intervened to put a stop to the practices inherited from previous administrations. They carried the war into Africa, by counter-charges against leading members of the opposition. The air was full of scandals and personalities, but none of the charges were of sufficient magnitude or sufficient certainty to weigh heavily against the prosperity of the country and the personality of the Prime Minister. The parliamentary majority, however, fell from sixty-two to forty-seven, and the popular majority from fifty to twenty thousand. The years had brought many changes in the ministry. Mr. Sifton had retired, Mr. Tart's resignation had been accepted, and Mr. Fitzpatrick had gone to the Supreme Court. Mr. Oliver had succeeded Mr. Sifton, Mr. Aylesworth had come from a distinguished place at the bar to the portfolio of justice, Mr. Pugsley was in charge of public works, Mr. Graham had left the leadership of the Ontario opposition for the portfolio of railways, Mr. Mackenzie King had jumped from the civil service to the cabinet, and Mr. Lemieux and Mr. Brodeur were the Prime Minister's chief colleagues from Quebec. The opposition benches showed almost as many changes. Of the former Conservative ministers, Mr. Foster and Mr. Haggart only remained in active service, while Mr. Doherty, Mr. Ames, and Mr. Meehan were among the more notable accessions. Some rumbles of discontent were heard against Mr. Borden's leadership, but the party as a whole rallied strongly to him, and his position, both in the party and in the country, grew increasingly firm. 
through all the changes the prime minister grew in strength and prestige each year that passed gave proofs of his masterful leadership the old cry that he was too weak to rule now gave way to the cry that he was too strong there was no question that for all his suavity he insisted upon being first minister in fact as well as in form in canada he had a hold upon the popular imagination which had been equalled only by sir john macdonald while abroad he was the one canadian or in fact the one colonial statesman known to fame the outstanding figure of greater britain end of section nineteen